The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Now one thing, every now and then I like to make a comment on this because you usually get somebody who comes along and says, well, that just seems so mechanical. Every time you start Bible class, you have few minutes of silent prayer, and you say basically the same thing. It's to teach a drill to people. It's to teach a principle to people, just like when you, if you were taking dance lessons, ballet lessons, music lessons, you have to go through the mechanics of basic exercises in order to learn the procedures. And then uh, when you have learned the mechanics, you put them together and it creates something of beauty in life. And that's the same thing with the Christian life. There are basic mechanics, just like there are basic mechanics in music, sports, anything in life. But once you learn them, you put them in practice in your own life and it creates something of value. So the exercise of confession prior to Bible class is designed to teach the congregation the principle. It is not just a mechanistic formality. But how else would one teach it other than to enforce it on a regular basis? So having said that, we'll bow our heads together to go to the Lord in prayer. Have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a privilege that we can come directly before you, before your throne of grace, because we have a high priest who has completed our salvation, paid the penalty for our sins, the veil was torn from top to bottom, and we have immediate access into your presence as royal priests. Father, we have your word that guides and directs us, and it is your word that is powerful. It is your word that is light in our thinking and it is your word that informs us how to think, how to live. And it is your word that you have determined as a means of sanctification as it is used by God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would make these things clear to us, help us to come to a better understanding of our own spiritual life, spiritual growth, that we may honor and glorify you in what we think, what we do, how we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 22 as we get into this last major episode 
in the life of Abraham. Now, as you know, we teach Bible class three times a week here. We have a study of Hebrews on Thursday night. We're studying basic doctrine on Sunday night. And on Tuesday night, we're going through Genesis. And it turns out every now and then that in the course of teaching, and this happens at least once a year, sometimes more than that, that no matter what books I'm teaching, no matter how disparate they may be, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, topical, whatever it might be, at no manipulation of my own, all of a sudden everything comes together and the classes on all three nights are almost on top of each other. They each complement one another. And as a matter of fact, as we get into Genesis 22, which is probably the greatest example of the faith rest drill in all of Scripture, that's the subject of the basic series next, next Sunday night. And if I had structured it, I would be teaching Genesis 22 as the example of the faith rest drill next Sunday night. And yet, that's our passage tonight. So everything's just falling right on top of each other. But obviously, that's the plan of God the Holy Spirit. And it makes it appear as if there's actually a plan. As if the Holy Spirit is actually somehow coordinating and directing the teaching of West Houston Bible Church. And I found that to be true many times in life. As I study, I'll study many different things, but they all tend to complement each other. On Thursday night, in our study in Hebrews 2, we're focused on sanctification. We were talking last Thursday night about the process of sanctification, or as it's better known, spiritual growth. We're talking about experiential sanctification. As it's pioneered by Jesus Christ, who's described in that chapter as the the pioneer or the pathfinder or the archetype and the completer of our faith. Hebrews 12.2 uses the same terminology, that Jesus Christ is the one who set the precedent for the church age spiritual life. The precedent isn't in the Old Testament in terms of the Mosaic law. There is a partial precedent established in the Old Testament in terms of the faith rest drill. The difference between Old and New Testament is the presence of God the Holy Spirit empowering the life of the believer as he advances. So that was the subject Sunday night as we talked about walking by means of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, that in the church age it's God the Holy Spirit who fills us with His Word. Many people get the uh, mistaken notion that the filling of the Spirit is a filling with the content of the Spirit. However, that would call for a genitive case in in that verse, and it's a dative case, which indicates instrumentality or means. We have filled by means of the Spirit, and as we studied Sunday night, the results of the filling by means of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.19 down through uh, the beginning of chapter 6 parallel the results of the letting the Word of Christ dwell richly within us in Colossians 3.16. So those two things work together, and that's the dynamic in the church age is the Word of God in conjunction with the Spirit of God produce maturity in the child of God. But in the Old Testament, the believer did not have the Holy Spirit. So it was just a matter of learning the Word of God, claiming the principles and the promises of God's Word. Now, as we looked at the life of Jesus, 
what we saw and what we've learned on our study on Thursday night is that Jesus had to be sanctified the same way that we're sanctified. Jesus Christ in his humanity had to grow and mature spiritually the same way that we do. That was part of his ministry. It wasn't the focal point, which was his work on the cross, but he set the, the pattern for a spiritual life. That's the thrust of Hebrews 2, 10 and following. We thus learned that sanctification isn't primarily related to sin. That's how we think about it, that sanctification means I've got to deal with this rotten sin nature. But both Adam, prior to the fall, when he was sinless, and Jesus Christ in hypostatic union, who was without sin, had to go through this maturation process, which is what sanctification is. So the primary idea of sanctification, or the spiritual life, is to grow in an in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, it was necessary for Jesus Christ to advance through various tests. Those tests gave him the opportunity to trust God and to obey God and to demonstrate his complete obedience. And so we look at passages such as Hebrews 5.8, which says, Though he was a son concessive clause there, and we could embellish that a little bit and say even though he was a son, and there it's a reference to his deity, son of God, even though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He had to go through that process of learning and demonstrating obedience to God. That's what the essential meaning of sanctification is is that you and I, after we're born again, after we're justified, go through a process where we learn to obey God. The thing that's different for us is we have this nasty sin nature we have to learn to deal with on the basis of what God has said. Hebrews 2.18 says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, and the word there translated tempted is one we'll look at in just a minute, perazzo, which has the idea of demonstrating something, proving the value of something, demonstrating the quality of something, not the idea of enticing to, to sin, which is how the English word tempt comes across. For in that he himself has suffered being tested, better translation, he is able to aid those who are tested. And that shows that we have an assistant, an aid, a helper, uh, not only in the Holy Spirit, but also in the priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he understands completely what we're going through. He is a peer in that sense, so that we don't have a Lord who is completely separate and distant from us, but one who's gone through the same kinds of problems and adversity that we go through. And this is illustrated again in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. So what he demonstrated demonstrated was in his humanity. God the Father provided everything he needed in order to handle these tests. He had God the Holy Spirit indwelling him who has empowered him to be able to do this. So in his humanity, completely apart from deity... In his humanity, he's able to face and surmount all these challenges 
by means of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, the same tools that you and I have. That Greek word I referred to a minute ago is the word peirazo, the verb. It means to demonstrate or prove something. It means to test or evaluate. It's a positive sort of thing, not a negative thing. It's not quite as positive as the word dokimazo, which is frequently used to prove or demonstrate the value of something, but it is more positive than negative. It's not there to demonstrate what a failure that you are or how incompetent we are. These are tests in order to give us the opportunity to trust God and to apply promises and principles, as we'll see. So Jesus Christ is tested in the same way that we must be tested. And so testing becomes a, the key mechanism, as we saw last week on Thursday night, is the key mechanism for advancing in the Christian life. And I'm just going to throw this chart up here very rapidly. Uh, it's familiar to many of you. It's out there on the website. I don't want trying, anyone trying to write down every detail here. We go After we're saved... We go through tests of doctrine, James 1, 2 through 4, which we'll look at before we're done this evening. When we're walking by means of the Holy Spirit, applying the word that we've learned and studied, Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. When we're learning the word, then that produces divine good. When we sin and we quit walking by the Spirit so that we're working, living according to the works of the flesh, Galatians 5, 16 and following, we produce sin... We produce human good, which is the uh, morality side of the sin nature, that is, morality produced apart from dependence upon God. And this leads to temporal death, dead works, the terms used in the Scripture. That, in turn, leads to further spiritual weakness and inability. And if uh, we continue in that state, there's spiritual regression, leads to a hardened heart, and before long, the carnal believer's life doesn't look any different from the unbeliever's life. In fact, it may look a lot worse because he's under divine discipline and going through uh, that divine punishment whom the Lord uh, loves, he disciplines. The only way to move from that bottom cycle to the top cycle is to confess your sins and then continue to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, abide in Christ. And that's what we studied on Sunday night. So you see how these things are all coming together. Uh, the Thursday night study on sanctification. Sunday night we covered the walking uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. And then this next Sunday we're going to get into uh, more of the dynamics or mechanics of the faith rest drill. And that's what we begin to see in Genesis 22, which is the final test for Abraham. Now when we look at this process of sanctification... I made the point that sanctification is related to learning obedience, developing a consistent obedience to the Word of God. That's that idea of walking by means of the Holy Spirit. Excuse me a minute. The pastor forgot to turn off his... I should have answered that. It's Wayne House calling to talk about the Israel trip. Okay. Um... Jesus said in John 14:15, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." So that love for God is demonstrated through obedience to his word. Love for God is not demonstrated by how we feel. 
Love for God is not demonstrated by achieving a certain emotional state or mental attitude state or uh, sentimentality generated by singing certain kinds of choruses or hymns that are uh, written to certain kinds of music designed to get people into a certain state of consciousness and then defining that state of consciousness or emotion as worship. That's all that generated out of the charismatic movement in the 50s and 60s and it swept the Christian community so that worship is is defined not in terms of obedient submission to the Word of God. Worship is defined in terms of how you feel and that's paganism. So Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's a pretty objective standard. John reiterates that in 1 John 2.3, where he writes, By this we know that we have come to know him. And that's not salvation. That's not salvation. That exact phrase in the Greek, coming to know him, was utilized by Jesus in the upper room discourse when he turned to Philip and he said, Philip, how long have you been with me and yet you haven't come to know me? Now, Philip was saved, but he didn't know Jesus. Now, that just doesn't fit this typical sloppy evangelical terminology where they want to use coming to know Jesus as equivalent to being saved. Biblically, coming to know God is a post-salvation growth issue. It is not uh, salvation. So John says, by this we come to know that we have... We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Again, it's related to an objective standard. 1 John 5, 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. And if you go back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, there's about eight times in the book of Deuteronomy where God says, If you love me, you keep my commandments. And I've often thought, after the last time I worked my way through Deuteronomy, that Deuteronomy is all about love. When Jesus summarized the law in uh, Matthew 22, 37, and 38, He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. The whole summary of the Mosaic Law which is what Deuteronomy is, is that it starts with loving God. And loving God is demonstrated by applying the Word in your life. That's what keeping the commandments means. It doesn't mean keeping the Ten Commandments. It means applying the mandates of Scripture, whether it's the positive mandates or the negative prohibitions. It's doing what the Word of God says to do and not doing what the Word of God says to not do. This is how we measure spiritual growth in terms of obedience and in terms of of that capacity which comes from the Word of God. Notice that it is, you have to know the commandments to keep His commandments, and to know the commandments you have to read the Scripture on a regular basis. You have to go to Bible class and study the Word so you can properly interpret the commandments and understand uh, what is being taught and how it's being taught. And if you don't take the time and the discipline to read the Word, study the Word, learn the Word under a pastor teacher that's qualified and trained and is teaching the Word in detail, you can't grow. It's not just some sort of Christian osmosis because you show up and you sing a bunch of Christian choruses for 30 minutes. It is a study and application of the Word that is the focal point throughout the Scriptures. It says that we grow 
through the study of the Word. Sanctify them by thy Word. Thy Word is true. It doesn't say sanctify them by hymns, sanctify them by choruses, sanctify them by uh, getting together and having fellowship. It is sanctification comes by a study of the Word of God and its application in our lives. So all of this demonstrates the core principle that sanctification or the spiritual life or spiritual growth, whatever term we want to use, is measured by learning to obey the Word and its application in our life. Now, Sunday night we saw how this dovetails with walking by the Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who teaches us, who stores the doctrine in our soul, and it is the Holy Spirit who reminds us of the Word so that we can apply it in times of testing. Now, all of that develops into something called the faith rest drill, which we'll get into on Sunday, and that is trusting God, applying the principles, the promises, the procedures of His Word whenever we get the, a particular test or opportunity. And Abraham is a key illustration of this. And we see this when we come to Hebrews 11. Now, Hebrews 11, uh, 9 down through about verse 19, focus on Abraham and his and gives us a key element of the importance of Abraham's life as it's understood in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11:17, we read, By faith, that is, by means of trusting the promises, the principles, and the procedures God had revealed to Abraham. It's not faith in faith. That's this health and wealth gospel. That's the mystical, charismatic orientation today. It's by means of faith in the Word of God. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, so it relates the operation of faith here. It's not saving faith. This is sanctifying or spiritual life faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Three key ideas, ideas there that we're going to develop in Genesis 22. Faith is operational in relationship to testing, and the object of faith are the promises, principles, and procedures revealed in the Word of God. That's Hebrews 11:17. Now, when we come to the New Testament, I said when we started our study of Abraham that when we come to the New Testament, God re- talks about or uses Abraham in the New Testament in six different ways. So the life of Abraham is then picked up in the New Testament to illustrate Six different things. And this is important for understanding our what's happening in Genesis 22. First of all, it's God's provision for the human race through the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a provision for the human race through the Abrahamic covenant. He makes specific promises to Abraham and his seeds related to, to the land and that uh, the blessing is going to come through his seed. And Paul picks that up in Galatians 3 and applies that to the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, there will be a blessing to all mankind through Abraham. The second thing is election. God's choice or selection of Abraham and the Jews in the Old Testament becomes the picture for understanding what Paul discusses on election in the New Testament. Third is justification by faith alone, which takes place 
when the believer understands the gospel and puts his faith alone in Christ alone. This is what we refer to as phase one salvation, the first stage of salvation. It's instant. It's complete. You get everything for the Christian life of justification uh, phase one. This is illustrated uh, in Genesis 15:6, which is a parenthetical statement that is a reminder. Now, Abram had already believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. That verse, Genesis 15:6, is picked up and quoted in Romans 4 and Galatians 2. And it is the standard Old Testament picture for justification by faith alone. That how is a person saved? When they trust Christ as Savior, Christ's righteousness is reckoned or imputed or credited to the account of the believer. And because he now possesses the perfect righteousness of Christ, God the Father declares him just. He is justified by faith. It's not on the basis of his works, his own righteousness, his own obedience. It is on the basis of the righteousness of Christ alone that the individual is declared just. But we have another kind of justification given in James 2. And this, as we'll see, is a vindication before man and before the angels. It is a second kind of justification, and that's indicated in James 2, 19 to 24. Then, fifth, we have the principles of spiritual growth and spiritual advance illustrated in Hebrews 11, 8 to 19, how we grow spiritually by faith Abraham, by faith Abraham, by faith Abraham. That's the uh, repetition in Hebrews chapter 11. So Abraham is a picture of how to, how to get saved, as we would put it in our uh, patois today, justification by faith alone. He's a picture of mature justification, vindication before man and angels. And in Hebrews 11, he is the picture of how to get from spiritual birth to spiritual maturity. And this is indicated through the process of testing. And the classic test in Abram's life is Genesis 22. And then Abraham is the basis for missions because it is through the seed of Abraham that all the nations will be blessed. So when you understand the Abrahamic covenant, it drives you straight to the cross and then the cross almost acts like a blessing prism and spreads it out to all the nations so that the responsibility of church-age believers is to promote the expansion of the gospel and throughout all the nations on the earth. And incidentally, I did not mention this earlier, but there are some letters, I think, down here. I got some emails the last couple of days. Some of you are aware of this, that Venezuela has called for the expulsion of the, all the missionaries with New Tribes missions, and it may extend to other missionaries. So we need to be in prayer for those missionaries who are trying to get out. And they're, basically, the Venezuelan government is going to uh, steal all of their equipment and all of their computers and all of their assets and the people the missionaries can leave only with whatever they have on their whatever clothes they have on their back and that they can carry out in their suitcases. But we need to be constantly in prayer for missions, for missionaries and for the work that they are doing on the field. So Abraham is the 
picture, the, the greatest picture in the Old Testament of faith, of growth, of testing and surpassing the test. And the, the, his final exam comes in chapter 22. So let's go to Genesis 22 with just an introduction. That's as far as we'll get this evening. Just an introduction to this particular passage. Genesis 22 is the last test in Abraham's life. That doesn't mean that there weren't other episodes or failures afterwards, but the Scripture presents, I've identified about 12, sometimes I've said 13. There's one episode I go back and forth on, so I'm just you know, indecisive. But there's uh, at least 12 tests. What's interesting is the rabbis have said for years that there are 10 tests. That's because the rabbis do this mystical thing with numbers, and there's a lot of patterns of ten in Genesis, so they have to come up with ten tests. But uh, depending on the rabbi you read, the tests are different. There's actually, I think, about thirteen tests in the life of Abraham, and this is the thirteenth. But the um, uh, the rabbis shifted around. No, no two rabbis give you the same ten. So there's obviously more than ten tests there, but they have to have things fit fit the pattern. Rabbinical theology refers to this episode in Genesis 22 as the Akeda, and that is a translation of the Hebrew word for binding. It is a reference to the binding of Isaac. This is the story of God telling Abraham to take his son, his only son, his only begotten son, up to the mountains of Moriah and there to bind him and put him on an altar and to sacrifice him, human sacrifice. And it is the story of how God provides at the last minute. He stops Abraham just as Abraham is getting ready to slit Isaac's throat. God stops him and provides a substitute, a ram that is caught in the, in the bushes, and he provides a substitute, and it is that substitute that is then killed and offered as a burnt offering to God. That's the thrust of the story. Now, first point in terms of introduction was just a reference to the rabbis, reference to this as the Akita. This is one of the most important episodes for, for the Jews. If you are witnessing to Jews, this is a passage to go to and use over and over again. The rabbis write more about this than they do about just about anything in the Old Testament. However, if you're dealing with a, with a Christian, if you're dealing with, or not a Christian, but if you're dealing with a, with a Western cynic a lib, influenced by liberal theology, they often come to this passage with some evolutionary presupposition, the idea that, well, religion just evolved over time, and this just shows you that the, that the Jews at the early stage of their history uh, held to human sacrifice and that their idea of God just evolved over time. And they'll point out that the God here is a harsh God and that, is that is much different from the God of the New Testament, and this God seems to be comfortable with human sacrifice. But this is typical of the kind of methodology that governs liberal scholarship. They start off with the presupposition, such as evolution, that, that there really isn't a God, that if, even if there were a God, he couldn't communicate to human history. He couldn't speak. He, if he did, it wouldn't be without air. It would be all muddied up 
by a fallen man or by, uh, in, by fallible mankind. And liberal methodology always presupposes contradictions and flaws and problems in the Bible. And I just wanted to give you an example of this. This is taken from the Anchor Bible Dictionary. And one of the reasons I, I quote from this is there are going to be pastors who listen to this message and they utilize some of these computer programs. And the Anchor Bible Dictionary is a, a well-known uh, Bible dictionary that really has a strong liberal bias to it. But one of the flaws today is you get a lot of young men and a lot of pastors who don't have a lot of training and they just see all these different uh, resources on their computer and they don't understand how to read this information critically. And not only that, but college kids and high school kids often run into this same kind of thing in textbooks, in Western civilization textbooks and, and sociology textbooks and history of religion textbooks. And so they need to know how to learn how to develop critical thinking when they hit this kind of stuff. Well, this has to do with the naming of Moriah because God tells uh, Abraham to go to the mountains of Moriah and there to, to sacrifice Isaac. And Second Chronicles 3, verse 1, I further identifies Moriah. These are the only two places that Moriah is mentioned in the Old Testament. And in Second Chronicles 3, 1, we have an episode where Solomon is beginning to build the temple to the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now, the location there is not related to Abraham, even though it's the same name. It's related to the place where the Lord had appeared to David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now, listen to how a liberal approaches this. The obvious question at this point, they write, is how the two Moriahs are related. It's generally agreed. Listen to that. It's generally agreed. By who? Who is it that's agreeing? A bunch of liberal scholars who don't believe in the Bible? Who, who, who is it in this statement? You've got to ask questions like that. It's generally agreed that the location in Genesis 22, 22 verse 2, cannot be the same as the one in Second Chronicles 3, 1. Well, who are they reading? They're not reading any of the scholars that I read. Who's agreeing? You always have to find out who the so-called scholars are. Then they, it goes on to say, Jerusalem is in a wooded area to which it would not be necessary to carry firewood. God told Abraham to carry firewood there. Now think about that a minute. Where did they get the idea that Jerusalem was a wooded area? Now? Or when Solomon built the temple? When Solomon built the temple, what was the date? The date was about 970 B.C. Well, when did Abraham take Isaac up on Moriah? That was about a little before 2000 B.C. So you have over a thousand years between the episode in Genesis 22 and the building of the temple. How do you know what was on Mount Moriah in terms of wood? Maybe there had been, been a fire. Maybe there just wasn't any wood there. Maybe it was a... Uh, there was a drought and there hadn't been any wood there. There's evidence of a drought and a famine back in Genesis chapter 15. So there, there's all of these assumptions that the liberals bring to the text because their starting point is that it can't be true, there can't be a God, he can't speak the truth, and we can't rely on the Bible. And so that's all they can do is point out errors like this. 
Furthermore, they reason, quote, Also, it does not make sense that the whole land should be called Moriah if the word is a name for the Temple Mount, nor that the hill bearing the name should be properly called one of the hills in that area. But it, the name of one mountain can easily refer to the range or a series of hills there that are all part of that one mountain. Now, if you presuppose that the Bible is the Word of God, and see, the liberals don't tell you up front that we don't believe it, we don't believe the Bible, we don't trust it, God didn't write it, it's all a bunch of lies. They don't tell you that. But we come to the text as conservatives and we say, we believe this is the Bible, we believe God revealed it, it's an errant, infallible, that's our presupposition. I'm not ashamed of it, I'm not going to hide it, I'm just going to put it right out there in the open so you know where we're starting. And we believe that unless there's evidence to the contrary, this is true. So when the Scripture says that the temple was built on Mount Moriah, there's a definite connection going back to Genesis chapter 22. And this would tie things together because it shows that God has a plan and a pattern and things aren't just happening in the Scripture willy-nilly. That God is tying all of these things together and there is a purpose for this connection between Abraham's offering of Isaac on Moriah and the sacrifices that are going to be made on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the Temple Mount. And this is, in some sense, it's sort of weird to go to this, but there's a substantiation in one form through Islam because the Muslims believe that the Temple, that the, the Dome of the Rock, which is on the Temple Mount, was built on the site of the sacrifice of Ishmael. See, they get all distorted there. They think it was Ishmael that was sacrificed, that was taken up there instead of Isaac uh, because that's a satanic attack on the Scripture. But at least they got the point right that this was where Abraham went for the sacrifice. Anyway, that's just an example of the kind of uh, reasoning that you frequently run into. It's very subtle, and we have to learn to think critically whenever we read or hear anybody who comes uh, to deal with the Word of God. Both conservative Judaism and conservative Christianity believe that the site of Moriah is the site of the temple. Now, as we look at this episode in Genesis 22, we ask ourselves, why is it there? And it's there because God is going to test Abraham to see if he has finally understood everything that God has been trying to teach him since Genesis 12. Genesis 12, he laid out the basic provisions of the covenant. We've gone over this enough. You ought to be able to tell me what they are. Three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. Uh, See, everybody lip sync with me on that. Land, seed, and and blessing. You're going to go to your grave saying land, seed, and blessing. This is the foundation for understanding history. It's the foundation for understanding the rest of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. And we have to understand this. So God tests Abraham with respect to the promises he made to him. And we've gone through all these various tests where there's a famine in the land and Abraham leaves so that he failed the test related to the land. Then there's tests related to the seed. And Sarah said, well, I can't get pregnant. Uh, go get, get my handmaid pregnant. 
Instead of trusting God, he's trying to solve the problem on his own, and so that was a seed test. And then we had blessing tests that he passed when, when the marauders from the uh, military alliance of Keterleomer and the kings of the east invaded, and they uh, captured the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the valley and took them as hostages. It was Abraham who functioned as a blessing to the nation. So all these tests relate to the promises God made Abraham as part of that unconditional covenant. The same kind of thing happens with us in the church age. The tests that God brings into our lives for our spiritual advance are related to the provisions that he gave us at the instant of salvation. That whole package that God gives us, those, those blessings that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, 2, that we have been blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, it's those unshakable provisions that are part of our spiritual asset package are what God tests as we advance through the Christian life. So Abraham is the picture of the faith rest drill, and we see basically three things that are going on here. That Abraham is tested to see if he understood these doctrines that God's been teaching him. Second, Abraham provides a, a shadow imagery that will later be fulfilled down to the minutest detail. And so Genesis chapter 22 picks up uh, typologically certain imagery. We're told in verse 2, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac. And in the, in the Greek translation of verse 2, the phrase only son is translated with the Greek word monogenes. Monogenes. And monogenes can be broken down from mono, meaning one, genes related to genao or generation or uniquely generated one, or it can refer to one of a kind. And that's the main idea. It's one of a kind. It's applied here to, to Isaac. He was a one of a kind son. He's not the only son. He's got Ishmael. But he is a uniquely provided son. It's applied later to Jephthah's daughter. She's monogenes. She is his only daughter. So it refers to the uniqueness of the child. And so Isaac is a picture and a type of Jesus Christ. Uh, the ram that's provided in the bushes is a picture or type of, the sh- of uh, substitutionary atonement. So there's this typological detail that's given. And then we see that this is all a picture of God, how God uses testing for spiritual advance in the believer. Now that's what we're focusing on uh, tonight is this whole aspect of testing. How does testing uh, work? First point, the tests referred to in Scripture for spiritual advance are more than just the negative vicissitudes and problems that we run into in life. Oh, in some sense that's a test, but that's doesn't really, most of those things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis don't really rise to the same level of those situations in the Scripture that are designed as tests. These are specific events that are designed by God for each one of us to produce momentum in our spiritual advance. We can think of Abraham as being an individual that faced a lot of different challenges in life. Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. 
as a wealthy businessman, he faced all kinds of opportunities where he was tested in terms of his business, business ethics. Well, none of those are ever brought out in the text as tests, yet those are in some sense a test for each of us. Just how do we conduct ourselves in terms of our, our basic ethics on a day-to-day life? So the first point is the tests referred to in Scripture are those that are of a greater value designed to test our spiritual advance. Second, we see from the illustration of Abraham's life that the tests are negative circumstances that are directly related to the promises God made in the Abrahamic covenant. Third, we see that the tests are specifically designed by God. Verse 1, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. So it is a divinely designed test. It's not just the negative things that happen because we live in a fallen world and we have to deal with fallen people and the kind of negative circumstances you face in life. These are of of a higher quality. Fourth observation that we can make is the tests are for the benefit of the one tested in terms of spiritual growth. They are designed to produce momentum in your spiritual growth. They're designed to put to particular test doctrines that you have learned and to deal specifically with you in terms of the weaknesses of your sin nature so that those weaknesses can be dealt with by the Word of God. It allows the believer to convert the potential, which is the doctrine that's in the soul, into reality. Since God is omniscient, He knows exactly what each of our weaknesses are. He knows, to put it in everyday language, He just knows what buttons to push so that you'll have to figure out what doctrine to use. And He's going to push everybody's buttons differently. And we, we've, we see that. You look around, you see some people, and it just seems like year after year after year they face the same kinds of tests, whether it's money tests, whether it's uh, tests with parents, tests with children, tests with, fine, uh, tests with uh, uh, health, whatever it may be. It just seems like their problems are all, their, their tests are always related to the same category. And that's because God sees that there's issues in their soul, in their sin nature, in their makeup that, are, that need to be dealt with in this particular way. And if God tested them in some other way, with some other situation, then their problems would not, uh, uh, they would handle the problems, the tests very easily. Fifth point, the ultimate purpose is for the believer to demonstrate Love for God through obedience and application of doctrine. That's what God is after. Why do you have the test? So that you demonstrate your love for God by applying doctrine. That's why James spends all that time in James, James 1 and James 2 that we're to be, not be just hearers of the Word, but appliers of the Word. Now that takes me to point, my sixth point, which is that God promises the believer that he's in charge of all these tests. And this is a promise, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Now, there's always some sort of human viewpoint or what I call pop religious uh, 
understanding of these promises that try to water, water them down or make them palatable that always distort people. I heard one recently, and that is that, well, God just not going to give you more than you can handle. That's not what this verse is saying. But that's the pop, that's the sort of the street religion version of this. And it's a distortion. The passage says, no testing has overtaken you as such as is common to man. Now let's just stop there. That tells you that no matter what you go through, no matter how much of it you're going through, no matter how many times you've had to go through these things in the last year, it's common to everybody. You're not special. No matter how bad it may have been, it's not unique to you. So whatever the testing is that you're encountering, no matter how horrible it may be, no matter how many people in your family have died, no matter how much you lost materially, it's still common to the human race. And then Paul says, but God is faithful. Get your focus off the circumstances, off the adversity, off the loss, and onto the immutability and the faithfulness of God. That this didn't come into your life by chance. Chance doesn't run the universe. The Darwinists think it does, but it doesn't. What runs the universe is the sovereign direction of God, and He is sovereignly involved in the testing in your life. So God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean God's not going to give you more than you can handle. There's more to it than that. That that truncates the promise. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you beyond what you are able, and it goes on from there. But will, with the testing, make a way of escape. Now that doesn't stop there either. Doesn't mean God's going to take it away. He will, with the testing, make a way of escape that you may what? Be able to endure it. That you can stay under the testing that you can stay under the pressure, that you can continue to live in the midst of the pressure cooker day in and day out by means of the promises of God and the the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what this promise is saying, is that every test you face, no matter how bad it may be, no matter how much you think, one more thing and I'm just going to collapse, God's given you everything you need in the principles, promises, and procedures of His Word and the indwelling and the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And you got it all at salvation. So the reason you can handle it and can bear it is because God has positionally given you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ everything you need to be able to handle the test. But the tests don't come randomly. They come under the sovereign control of God so we can relax and know that no matter how horrible it may be, God's in control, and He's designed this test specifically for me, knowing that this is something I need to, in order to advance in my spiritual life. So God promises the believer that He's in charge of the test, and that He's given us everything we need to handle whatever the test is, because the tests are all common to mankind. Seventh point is that the test is designed to manifest God's grace and power and to be a testimony to other human beings and to the angels. The test gives you an opportunity to be a spotlighted example of the grace of God. And that's brought out 
and the word that's used in the Hebrew. You don't get it from the Greek word for testing, but you do get it in the Hebrew word that's used here in Genesis 22.1. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And the word there for test is the Hebrew word nasah, which means to test or to try or to prove. That is a sense that you would take uh, uh, maybe unrefined gold and you would prove its value by burning off the impurities. Uh, it, can, it is translated tempt, but in the sense of testing, to assay something, to, to value it, to put to the proof, to put to the test. That's the main idea. The word etymologically derives from the Hebrew word nes, which means a signal pole or a standard, an ensign, a banner, a sign. And it shows that the understanding in Hebrew of the concept of testing was that it gave you an opportunity to sort of raise a banner that, that illustrated the grace of God, that you were posting a billboard over your life that I'm being tested by God and this, this gives me a chance to testify and be a witness to the sufficiency of God's grace and God's power in my life. And that's exactly what we see revealed in the New Testament, is that every time we have a test, it is an opportunity for us, as it were, to be a legal witness in a courtroom to the grace of God, the sufficiency of His grace, the sufficiency of the Word of God, and His ability to take care of us even under the most dire of circumstances. And that's the thrust of various uh, passages that relate to uh, Abraham's testing in Genesis 22. For example, we have James 1, 2 through 4, which is a benchmark passage on testing. You have to understand these three verses before you can understand the reference to Abraham in chapter 2. James 1, 2, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Then you have a causal participle, because you know that the testing of your faith, the testing of the doctrine, produces endurance. See, there's another little pop saying that's pure human viewpoint, and I, I've heard this many times. Uh, whatever, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. You all have heard that before. Whenever you're going through something, well, whatever doesn't kill you just makes you stronger. That's not true. Unless you're applying doctrine, it's not going to make you stronger. And that's what James is saying here, that when your faith is tested, when you apply doctrine, then it strengthens your soul and leads to maturity. That knowing, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then James 1.4 goes on to say, now endurance will have its literally completing work. That's that noun, teleos, which has the idea of completion or maturation. Endurance leads to maturity with the result that you may be mature and whole, lacking nothing. So that's the process of spiritual growth. It begins in testing. We have Hebrews 11:17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Now, we've seen that already, but what was the promise? The promise was, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. It's through that son that you're going to have innumerable descendants, among whom are going to be kings of nations. Now, Abraham can't have all those descendants if Isaac dies. That's his reasoning. He's finally beginning to handle the test in terms of doctrine, so he recalls with the promise of God, 
And he says, okay, what God has promised is I'm going to have innumerable descendants. Well, Isaac hasn't had any children yet. Interestingly, most Christians portray Isaac as probably 12, 13, 14. Uh, Rabbis thought he was 37. I don't know why they thought he was 37, but they say he was 37. They see him as an adult male. I've always thought he was an an adult male in this uh, passage for some reason, but uh, I don't know that he was 37. He could have been 25 or 20, but he was not a little boy. But he hasn't had, he isn't married, he hasn't had offspring yet. So Abraham is reasoning, saying, well, if God tells me to kill him, and God is going to give me descendants through him, then either he's going to stop me from killing him, or if I kill him, he's going to bring him back to life. But I'm finally at the point where I realize that I'm going to trust God implicitly. God's promise is going to be more real to me than my experience, so if God tells me to kill him, I'll kill him because God's going to fulfill his promise to me one way or another. And so Abraham is able to completely trust God in light of the previous promise, and he just happily and freely and without resistance takes Isaac and he says, we're going to go to Moriah, and he knows that God's going to provide a solution. And that's what Hebrews 11 says, that regarding the, the only begotten son, Hebrews 11:18, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding... See, he works through this rational process, thinking about the promise, thinking about the situation, and he concludes, God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham never batted an eye. Instant obedience. And that's what we should do. That's what it means to exercise the faith rest drill. The promise of God is more real to us then our emotions, then our feelings, then what, what empirical data tells us, we're going to walk by faith and not by sight. Then we come to the one episode where, Isaac, where, where Abraham is referenced and this issue with Isaac is referenced in James, and it's the illustration of application of doctrine. Now we have to remember what James said in James 1-2. That's the testing of your faith that produces endurance. He's talking about believers. He's not talking about entry into the Christian life. He's talking about how God tests you after salvation. So James 2 isn't about salvation justification. Verse 21, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? And see, some liberal always come along and say, See, you've got a contradiction here. James believes in justification by works. Paul believed in justification by faith. No, that's not true. James is talking about something completely different. He's talking about a vindication, an overt testimony. He's talking about that banner that talks about how you've trusted God and is a witness, a legal testimony to the grace and sufficiency of God. So he says, was not Abraham our father vindicated by works? It's a much better term here. When he offered Isaac his son on the altar... Don't you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was brought to completion? That's what he's talking about back in James 1, 2 through 4. You have a test, and when you apply doctrine, you're matured. So Abraham is applying doctrine, and he reaches maturity in Genesis 22. James 2, 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The Scripture is brought to completion. 
Genesis 15, 6 is the beginning of Abraham's spiritual life. And when he reaches spiritual maturity, that's the goal toward which salvation has moved. You weren't saved just to enter into heaven. You were saved to reach spiritual maturity, to be a a glorification testimony in the angelic conflict, and to mature so you can rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. And so Abraham is that picture from the Old Testament, and when he reaches maturity, he's called the friend of God. Now we get to the controversial verse in verse 24, and I'll take about two seconds to cover it. You see then that a man is, is justified by works and not by faith only. That's a pathetic translation. The reason is, is because it makes it look like you're not justified by faith alone, but by faith and works. See, it says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, indicating faith and works. But there's a problem there, and that's that word only. The word only is the Greek word monon. It's an adverb. Now look at that sentence a minute. What is, grammatically, what part of speech is the word faith? It's a noun. Does an adverb modify a noun? No. Not unless you're failing third grade grammar. Only must modify a verb. But there's not a verb in that second clause. The verb is borrowed from the first clause. It's what's called an ellipsized verb, a verb that's dropped out because it's obvious he's talking about justification. Literally what he's saying is, you see then that a man is justified by works and not justified by faith only. But it puts only in the wrong place. Only needs to modify the word justified. That's the verb. So it should read, you see then that a man is justified by works and not only justified by faith. This implies two different kinds of justification. Justification by faith alone for entry into eternal life. Justification by works, which is a vindication and a validation of your spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So the difference is illustrated by this slide. It's not by faith alone, which is the way it's translated, not by faith only. That is, i.e., by faith plus works. That's what it appears in almost every English translation. Or it should read, not only justified by faith, but also justified by works, indicating two kinds of justification. One related to your eternal destiny, having eternal life, imputation of righteousness, justification by faith alone. The other is the vindication of that as you grow to spiritual maturity, passing through the various tests, that when you reach your final exam, it vindicates the grace of God, the sufficiency of God's Word, the sufficiency of God's power to handle all the vicissitudes and problems and challenges of life. And that's what Genesis 22 pictures for us. Not the beginning of the Christian life, but the maturation process and how we can trust Christ in every situation because Christ is sufficient, His Word is sufficient, God's grace is sufficient. It is more than enough to handle any situation. So like Abraham, we can just relax and obey God and let God handle the consequences. Well, we'll get into the details of the text next time as it relates to an illustration of salvation and we go through the typology of this chapter.
Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged with Abraham's example, that that banner that he set up by his faith is a banner that we can still read today as an eternal testimony to both the angels and to the human race that your grace is sufficient, your word is sufficient, your power is sufficient, and that you never fail us. Father, we pray that we would be strengthened and encouraged by these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.